0: Our long-term vision is that today, this is true for a DTX company as it is for a drug company, taking your product to market is a three, five, 10-year journey, principally because clinical trials are just so high friction, so complex, so expensive. Our vision is that we want to make it as easy for a healthcare, for a biotech entrepreneur to validate their product, to get it into the hands of patients, as it is for an enterprise software or a consumer software entrepreneur to validate that product and get it into the hands of patients.
1: Welcome to Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Burhovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode, and it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous episode, I spoke with Susa Manicelli, General Manager at Propeller Health. In their own words, Propeller Health is a precision digital health company on a mission to uplift every person living with chronic disease, so they can take control of their health and live a better life. Today, I speak with Mary Beckwith, co-founder at Lindus Health. In their own words, Lindus delivers end-to-end clinical trials for health tech and biotech pioneers. But before we dive in, I was introduced to Mary a while back by Lena Venner, partner at First Minute Capital out of London. I thoroughly enjoyed my first discussion with Mary, Lindus's initial focus on digital therapies and an aggressive plan to grow their presence globally. The team just recently raised 18 million in fresh capital to continue carrying their vision forward. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mary. Mary, welcome to the DTX podcast as also one of the early sponsors and supporters of us here. Welcome and for all of our listeners, would love for you to introduce yourself, give us a little bit of your background. And you know this because you, I'm sure, listen to it as a sponsor, a small, interesting fact about yourself.
0: Thanks so much, Eugene. It's great to be here. My name is Mary Beckwith. I'm the co-founder of Lindus Health. We are an anti-CRO running radically faster, more reliable clinical trials for digital health and life science pioneers. A little bit about my background. So I'm not a clinician, but I've sort of been in the life sciences space for my entire career. Most of it as a a venture capital investor, kind of investing in digital health and life science companies, which is really how I discovered this problem of clinical trials. Maybe we'll come on to that in a second, but just want to touch on the interesting fact question. And I was thinking that there are a few different options I could go with here. I mean, you can give us two of them. That's fine. There's no limitations. (laughs) (laughs) No. When we spoke on your The Shot podcast, I mentioned some of my work, like my early kind of fascination with spiders and spider silk, but I thought I'd share my first ever job, which was with this kind of spider research group when I was sort of 17, I was like an intern. And they needed someone to fly out to Namibia and like, literally just like travel across the desert at night trying to find these uh, particularly large species of what's called camel spiders. And so that was my first ever job, getting parachuted into (laughs) the Namibian desert and trying to find these giant, like they're the size of dinner plates, giant spiders that run across the desert and sort of track them. So yeah, that was interesting. And if uh, half your audience haven't tuned out by now to discuss, then I'm uh, grateful for the other half for sticking with it.
1: I actually think that the audience will now, the other way around, will probably stick (laughs) a little bit longer to hear your advice to anybody who is going to Namibia trying to find spiders. If you are, talk to me, I've got stuff to share. Take us maybe from those days in trying to find spiders to how the idea of Linda's health even came around, right? Because I've been in life sciences industry for a number of years throughout my career. While it is a very large TAM, there's lots of incumbents, there's lots of problems to solve. So maybe let's dive deeper into how do you even came up? What was the genesis of Linda's health? And then we'll slice it up from there.
0: For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with this thing called Eroom's Law, which is Moore's Law spelled backwards. And it basically describes the exponential increase in cost to bring a new health treatment or drug to market. So it's been doubling roughly every 15 years for the last kind of 70 years. And it now costs a couple of different stats on this, but it's about $2 billion to bring a new drug or health treatment to market. And that's really crazy when you think about it. Like one of the world's most important industries is getting not just inefficient, but exponentially less inefficient. And the reason I've been obsessed with it is that just wanted to find out like why. I mean, (laughs) right. So, and all of the conventional explanations I found just like Completely wrong or unsatisfying, like the conventional one being that, like, oh, you know, we've hit all the druggable targets, or, you know, we've basically discovered there is to know about biology, which is just obviously nonsense. I mean, essentially, I sort of came across the answer when I volunteered to take part in a clinical trial myself, just as a participant for the first time. Um, it was actually one of the COVID vaccine studies. And I always thought the answer had something to do with clinical trials, because essentially 70, 80 percent of the cost of developing a new drug, a new health treatment or new DTX product is the cost of clinical trials to show it's safe and effective. And so when I took part in this clinical trial, it was a phase three for the Novavax COVID vaccine. It was a real eye-opening experience because it was just shockingly inefficient in just every way possible. So like signing up as a patient was really difficult. I remember having to download Internet Explorer to like access the study website because they built it without an SSL certificate, which just meant that Google Chrome automatically blocked it. And once I was on the study, like the most shocking thing was how inconsistently kind of data was being captured on the study. So I was like, okay, I think the answer definitely has something to do with the way clinical trials are run and and what's going on there. And essentially, you know, to cut a longer story short, realized that contract research organizations, which are responsible for the majority of clinical trials, often for DTX products as well as drug products, essentially have very, very bad incentives that mean that they're often incentivized. Often, you know, they make more money, the worse clinical trials go. And then you sort of play that forward and you realize that there's just this whole industry whose incentives are completely misaligned with patients, with developers of health products. So really, that was kind of the genesis for Lintus Health when we realized we had to build a better alternative to working with traditional SCROs.
1: You kind of alluded to, yes, there's the molecular development, there's the DTX. And I know when you guys went to market... Digital therapeutic companies were one of the key targets for you guys. So we'll talk a little bit later how that's evolving. But the reason I bring this up is, you know, if you step back, there's so many things that need to be done in that value chain. Recruitment, the sign-up process, continuous monitoring of the patients on it, and not to mention all the other components of the scientific validation of it all. Maybe describe a little bit what problem were you guys trying to solve? Because if you look at any of some large CROs, it's massive. It's a big problem to swallow. As a young company, you need to focus somewhere. So maybe talk us through a little bit where you fall into the value chain and where do you help and what's the problem you were trying to solve?
0: Yeah, completely. And all really good points. So what we heard from the market very clearly is that people do work with CROs for a reason. Like you, if you're a DTX founder or a biotech founder, like you've got your hands full developing a product, building your team. You don't want to have to build the internal capability to run a clinical trial. So it was very clear that like people wanted someone to come and sort of run an entire clinical trial as an outcome for them. So then, obviously, as a startup, as you say, focus, the problem then becomes, how can we run an entire clinical trial, but without losing focus and having to build too many things? So we thought behavioral health, digital therapeutics was a great first market because these were simpler clinical trials compared to drug trials, where we could build something that would cover the clinical trial design, the patient recruitment, the data capture, the data management and analysis relatively quickly. And that's really been our North star. So we think it's really important that that you can just come to us. And most of our customers do just give us like protocol synopsis or sometimes like, Hey, we know we need to run a study for like an FDA, you know, de novo certification, and we can handle absolutely everything else from the, you know, protocol design, site selection, actual clinical trial delivery, until sort of close out an analysis.
1: Before we go deeper into anti-CRO, Maybe let's step back, because many entrepreneurs listen to this podcast. We're in a very tough market right now, not just healthcare and not just DTX, I think overarchingly. Walk us through your fundraising efforts. And I think a lot of the entrepreneurs want to know sort of key milestones, because I think you've raised sort of right in the midst of the pandemic... Lots of cash went in. And then in the last, let's call it year-ish, it's been just very, very tough. Walk us through the milestones. Walk us through what you've accomplished. And congrats, by the way, on the very recent $18 million that you brought in to scale the company.
0: Yeah, no, thanks so much. We founded the company in basically the, the beginning of 2021. We were fortunate to raise our first seed round at like the height of the market in autumn 2021. So that was about $5 million U.S., After that, we kind of rolled out our end-to-end clinical trial platform. And so we have been running end-to-end clinical trials, about 15 of them, for about a year, producing some great results. So like the North Star for us was always that we could run an entire clinical trial and we could do it radically faster and producing much better data, which are the two things that customers really care about. And so we showed we could do that for a number of like digital therapeutic studies for companies like Habitual, Dopavision. And then we started to show into the 2022 that those results extrapolated up to more complex studies, you know, phase one to four drug studies. And we're running a number of kind of a large phase two and type two diabetes, a large phase four in insomnia. And I think at that moment, we decided the time was right to go out and try and raise a series A market definitely um, challenged, but we always wanted to make sure we had plenty of funding because we do take the responsibility of being trusted with people's clinical development pretty seriously. So with that kind of traction under our belt and having built out like the full platform we uh, went out to raise initially 12 to 15 million Series A and um, call it luck or something. I think our message sort of resonated with the market and we were all pleasantly surprised by how things went and lucky to bring on board some some great partners for that. So yeah, we raised from uh, Crandom who, who have been fantastic partners and then had some of our existing investors step up again, including um, First Minute and uh, Peter Thiel in the US.
1: Fantastic, and uh, to your point, you went out to the market 12 to 15. So I'm sure the question was, what can you do with a little bit more? <laughs> And of course, take it as you can to deliver. Let's switch gears a little bit or just start peeling the onion. Because this is a DTX podcast and you've alluded to, you know, obviously, the molecular clinical trials are complex. And you talked a little bit about that. A good entry point is the DTX, just because it was also it was like give you ability to test your platform all the way through, test the processes all the way through. And in that year plus, bring some results. Walk us through the, maybe some intricacies and uniqueness to the DTX. Like I'm just thinking out loud. I mean, there's things like sham apps, what are the active ingredients? I don't know, are those colors? How do you even recruit? Is it tech savvy people who will show the same, the results, but you're designing the DTX products, not only for tech savvy people, right? So I'm just curious some of the intricacies that you guys had to figure out for the DTX market.
0: That's a great question. And there are definitely intricacies. So I'd agree with all of those having an eligibility criteria that a patient has to be able to use a smartphone and be kind of digitally native, that's definitely one. And also, yeah, the comparator is huge. I mean, I think many of your listeners who've particularly tried to go through an FDA pivotal study will note selecting a comparator can be really finicky when it comes to DTX and often designing a sham app that works but not too well is sort of a tough balancing act. But I actually think like we've been sort of, as we move to running both DTX and drug studies now, we've been surprised at Overall, they're more similar than they are different. I would also just call out kind of one key difference or benefit, or maybe two key differences or benefits of running a a DTX study is you can get very creative with the types of endpoints you use. This doesn't matter so much when you're running like an FDA pivotal study because you're kind of locked in to showing what the FDA wants you to show for whatever indication you're going after. But particularly for some of those like payer access studies, you know, health economic studies, you can get very creative and, you know, look at things like, really show some sort of rich longitudinal data about utilization, look at longer follow-ups, really utilize the fact that you have, in many cases, like a daily connection with your users to creatively show uh, an impact. So I think that's interesting. And I think you can only just see digital therapeutics developers start to explore that. Digital therapeutics studies lend themselves really well to decentralized trials. And these are clinical trials where a patient never actually visits a physical site. They definitely won't be for everyone, depending on the endpoints you're looking at. And we definitely aren't like a decentralized trial. We don't only do decentralized clinical trials, but there are advantages in terms of just broadening access to clinical trials, to patients who might not live in within driving distance of a center, and generally making it easier for patients to participate.
1: I'm actually curious how you look at it. On this show, we did discuss, right? I mean, DTX is kind of, well, yes, it's considered a medical device. On the other side, it's being treat it as a molecule, right, from uh, all the phases that you need to go through. How do you look at DTX, you know, I guess, software drug, right? And I think there's also different modalities of it all.
0: Yeah, completely. I mean, most regulators look at it like a device, which I think is somewhat inappropriate because with virtually all DTX products, there's zero risk, unlike most certainly invasive devices. We tend to think of them as most akin to like behavioral health interventions, health coaching, for instance, or targeted information. When we help our customers design studies for payer access, where you can have sort of a freer hand about the endpoints you look at, how you conduct the study, it helps to kind of think of them as a behavioral health intervention. But when you're designing a study for FDA approval, you need to play their game. And it really is about it being a medical device.
1: I love that. I think first time I'm hearing on this, but it makes sense around the behavioral health intervention. Now, you mentioned you started in the DTX world. Are you also starting to see more and more pharmaceutical clients coming your way? And because you've been anchored initially into the DTX, are a lot of these companies coming your way and saying, hey, we're designing our own DTX, are we partnering with DTX company? What are you seeing in the market? And I've been always kind of saying, well, pharma not invented here on one side, right? So R and D we want to develop it. On the other side, there are many entrepreneurs that just can move quicker, faster, cheaper, better, right? And so why do it inside? Just purchase that later when there's significant revenues. So I'm kind of curious, what are you hearing from your prospects and or clients in the pharmaceutical industry?
0: We're definitely seeing more interest in digital health broadly and digital therapeutics. And you're right, like pharma's not a monolith, but there is increasing recognition. Pharma, they know the drug world and anything in because of software is just not their bag. We work with a number of pharma clients, including J&J, AstraZeneca, for sort of digital health products where we're helping run studies for them. And in most cases, they've actually partnered with um, digital therapeutics or digital health specialist company who's developed the product. And they then have a partnership for distribution, but also to fund the clinical studies with the pharma. And I think that partnership works really, really well because you've got the timelines and the balance sheet of pharma kind of underwriting the study. But you have the, uh, the, sort of the digital expertise and the agility of the startup actually developing the product. So like we're helping run a really cool, I'm not sure whether you'd quite call it a DTX, but it's definitely a digital health product, kind of a companion diagnostic and symptom tracker for a rare disease called Myasthenia Gravis with a large pharma company, but that was developed by a French digital health company called Adsientium which is a really interesting partnership. And, you know, talking to lots of other companies in the space, a few others that I can't really talk about publicly yet. But I think you're seeing this probably in the DTX market as well with companies like Mahana just announced an interesting tie-up with Bayer along these lines. I know companies like Sidekick Health, this has been their model for a while. And so while DTX has had, I think some companies have found challenges trying to go direct to market on the PDT route, build the product and build the distribution. I think there's an emerging, really interesting partnership here where pharma brings the resources for the clinical study and the distribution, and then the, the DTX companies stick to their superpower, which is in developing these products in the first place.
1: There's some companies to your point, been from literally day zero, the hypothesis has been partner with pharma and develop and go to market together and leverage the best of each of us to bring it to market and others saying, well, there's no need for molecular intervention. It's a standalone. And ultimately, that's why I used to ask the question, you know, will pharma swallow the DTX as a pill (laughs) or vice versa? I kind of stopped asking that question, but it's fascinating to see uh, these things turn. I mean, Click has great relationships with pharma and going that route from day zero as well. Well that sound means it's time for a question from our amazing partner on this podcast Chandana Fitzgerald who is the CEO of Health Excel and as her friends call her Dr No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hi Mary there's a bunch of announcements out there about delays in trials trials being put on hold and some of them being cancelled even in the DTX space what are your thoughts on this?
0: Thanks Chandana yeah really interesting question We've definitely heard some news to that effect. I think a lot of companies that had been pursuing the pure sort of PDTX route, kind of pausing and reconsidering there. But at the same time, there's some positive news and it feels like the momentum is swinging back a bit. So I think particularly interesting, we talked about the pharma partnerships, the OTC route is interesting, companies like Achille blazing a trail there. But then, you know, outside of the US, you're seeing really strong uptake. So I think most of your listeners probably know about DIGA, very interesting reimbursement program there. What's also interesting is that France is essentially copying the Diga model; they're calling it PECAN. I'm not sure about the pronunciation. And then there's a few other countries in the Baltics that are copying that model as well. There's now, I think, 48 DTX products reimbursed by Diga. So just a really quick and easy route to market for companies there. And I think we're seeing a lot more U.S. DTX companies take notice and think about how they can access not just Diga, but some of these other reimbursement programs in Europe as well, which is really interesting.
1: And I'm going to hop in here. I mean, look, when the funding dries up and you're still in R&D mode, it doesn't matter if you're a DTX company or not. <laughs> you're going to make choices on what to put on hold, what to delay, what to cancel altogether, right? So to me, this is not a phenomena of DTX industry. I think it's a phenomena of a business decision that just needs to be potentially delayed at some points. So-
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, because like, you know, if you think about this from a VC's point of view, I mean, not many VCs are kind of specialists in DTX, but fundamentally, I mean, even the ones that are all looking for the same thing, which is a quick route to market, some commercial validation that payers want your product if you look at the DTX companies who kind of weathered this storm, the best, it's those who've had a diversified route to market where they can show that uptake, be it via a direct to consumer offering, an employer offering, or some companies that have listed really quickly on programs like TIGA, where they can get quick reimbursement.
1: We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Mary Beckwith, co-founder at Linda's Health. As we come into the close of this particular episode here... We started this discussion with clinical trials are highly regulated, complex, lots of paperwork. I still can't believe that there is, but still lots to digitize. You would
0: not believe, yeah.
1: <laughs> to be honest, I don't even want to know. That's why I think the anti-CRO companies like yourself are doing a great job. But where do you really see this all going? We're talking about distributed trials for a number of years. What's your vision and how realistic is it in the next three, five, seven, 10? I'm just curious on your thoughts on the future of clinical trials.
0: Yeah, completely. Like we are honestly just only scratching the surface. Yeah. I mean, like digital or decentralized clinical trials have been like, call it a meme for like the last 10 years. But I think really like broadly generalized what's happened is at most people have like digitized a pretty broken paper-based process. And so we think there's a huge opportunity to really reimagine how clinical trials are run. And that's kind of how we've built our platform. So you know, we're saying that that we have a technology platform, but we also have a clinical operations team. We're still kind of overseeing, interacting with patients on a daily basis, interacting with our sponsors, our customers. You can sort of look, and the FDA has, has done a particularly good job of this, really clarifying the regulations and guidance about what a best-in-class clinical trial looks like, how technology can be used to improve patient safety, to improve data quality. So what we're doing in the medium term is looking at that FDA guidance and just building out a platform that meets every aspect of it and kind of consciously just completely disregarding what the industry has done before to that anti-CRO point. So that's the medium term, but to kind of answer your question about where we see this going long-term, our long-term vision is that today, this is true for a DTX company as it is for a drug company. Taking your product to market is a three, five, 10 year journey, principally because clinical trials are just so high friction, so complex, so expensive. Our vision is that we want to make it as easy for a healthcare, for a biotech entrepreneur to validate their product to get it into the hands of patients, as it is for an enterprise software or a consumer software entrepreneur to validate that product and get it into the hands of patients. Now, there will always be differences because an experimental drug is not a piece of business software, but fundamentally, we think that we can do a ton of good by just lowering those barriers making it much easier for an entrepreneur with any kind of health idea to kind of test that product safely and get it into the hands of patients. So, yeah, that's going to take a few years, but I think we made a good start and pretty excited about what our team can do over the next few years.
1: You started Linda's just a couple of years back. You've been scaling it. You've seen lots of different challenges when it comes to regulatory environments. And I usually ask the guests in the show to give advice to, I don't know, entrepreneurs or doctors, but I'm gonna put you in the spot here. And I'd love to know what advice you would give to the FDA.
0: Oh, <laughs> wow. So controversially, I think the FDA's done an amazing job, well, I don't know why, maybe this isn't controversial, but I,
1: <laughs> I don't think it's as controversially that statement, by the way. I think every person that have been on this show so far said FDA is your friend, but go ahead,
0: please. So maybe not controversial. I definitely agree with that. I think they've done an amazing job of clarifying the guidance around how to run clinical trials, working with initiatives like City to really think about, okay, we live in a software, a data age, how can we use this to help run sort of faster, safer clinical studies and ultimately make it easier for companies to develop new treatments? I would say... At the senior levels, those folks are doing fantastic work and are really making it easier for all of us. I would say at some of the more like kind of more junior and mid levels, they still can be very conservative. So I mean, you know, one example for DTX is insisting on a, a sham app comparator, as opposed to say, you know, a waitlist control, which is a common design you see in Europe, or treatment as usual. I mean, that definitely slows particularly DTX clinical trials down and can make it harder to show an effect, perhaps unfairly hard. I think I just wish that thinking would sort of permeate down through the entire organization. Overall, I think they've done a fantastic job and um, really hope the EMA, for instance, (laughs) takes notice and, and follows suit.
1: Let me go to the next one to put you in the spot. I know picking a person or an entity that you look up to in this space. It can be DTX specifically, it could be a clinical trial space, but would love for you to give our listeners a little bit of who do you look up to in the industry? And it could be again, a broader digital health industry, a healthcare industry, we up to you.
0: I'm going to go with, so Ben Liu is the founder and CEO of Trialspark, who are kind of a quasi competitor, but essentially they started off trying to do something similar to what we're doing. So running end to end clinical trials. And then they realized like, why don't we just go a step further and actually become like our own pharma company? So buy or license in drug or diagnostic assets, run the clinical trials to show they work on our platform and like compete with Pfizer. As an entrepreneur, we're both entrepreneurs. Many of the listeners know there are always times when you think like, is what we're doing too crazy? will this work? And I picked Ben just because we had a few chats with him early on. And I think they showed that it was actually possible to run end-to-end clinical trials faster using software and that we weren't crazy. And conveniently, they've sort of moved off in a slightly different direction, leaving plenty of blue ocean for us. But yeah, I've always found that story inspiring. And I think to do it five or 10 years before we have, when... The regulations were that much less clear, and the software was sort of that much harder to build. It's a huge achievement. And yeah, very excited to see what they can do as essentially a pharma company now.
1: I always like to say, everything is possible as long as you have time and money. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You know, and again, I want to congratulate you guys to buying yourself more time with more capital injection to get where you want to get to.
0: It comes at a cost in terms of just your, your sanity and. It's very much like a testament to the team's hard work.
1: As usual, we started with the guest, you, and let's end with you. What makes you get up every
0: morning? I know a lot of your guests say this, but I think it's when we run these clinical trials, we are literally in most cases responsible for providing at least gold standard care to the patients on them. And so we have a wall up in the office where we have patient testimonials and it gets kind of exponentially bigger every day, but some of the testimonials on that wall are fantastic. So these are from patients that are taking part in our clinical trials who've sort of written in, often unprompted, just to express gratitude or how taking part in the trial or having access to the treatment they're on has sort of changed the way they think about their condition or even their day-to-day lives. And I think because a lot of the clinical trials we run are in particularly common or underserved conditions, be that like rare diseases like myasthenia gravis or more common but still underserved diseases like type 2 diabetes... These are diseases that the current health system is particularly bad, I think, at treating because the health system is set up to be very episodic. Some of those patient testimonials are fantastic about how we've um, really helped people materially improve people's day-to-day lives, as well as, of course, the longer-term impact we can have on making it much easier for health entrepreneurs to get their products to market.
1: Mary, thank you very much. Amazing to see your team grow and the benefits that you bring to the patients and the ecosystem. And thank you, as always, for being a sponsor and believer in this podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Eugene, and for the work that you and the team do on uh, shining a light on the industry.
1: Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of Mission-Based Media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Help or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borovic and catch you next time.